Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to Psalm 120. If you're using the church Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 516. Psalm 120, and this has the heading, A Song of Ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, They are for war. Uh, The book of Psalms has been described as a mini Bible, the Bible in miniature form. Because when you turn to the, the book of praises or the book of Psalms, you really have a compact theology. Uh, It tells us so much about the character of God. It it dwells on the corruption of our human condition. It describes our our sins, our iniquities. It describes uh, the the extent of our corruption. It tells us about the promises of God's salvation. But it also describes for us the way of faith. How is it that a person follows the Lord in this life? What does that even look like? And the book of praises, the book of Psalms, does all of these things. It describes the emotions of the soul of the believer, as well as teaching them how they ought to live in God's world. And so you can understand why the book of Psalms has been described as a mini Bible. But this evening, as we're turning to the Psalms, we want to look at a particular section of uh, the book of Psalms. We want to look at a section that is known as the Psalms of Ascents. And you'll notice there that as we read Psalm 120, it has that heading towards it. This is actually a collection of psalms, uh, 15 psalms, that all have this heading to them, or are all grouped together under that notion. And uh, we may not think of the psalms as organized, but the book of praises really was ordered very intentionally. The book of Psalms is really organized into five books, and each of those books has a certain theme that is developing within it. Uh, And as we come to this here uh, section of the Psalms, these Psalms have been purposely arranged at some point in history. They were brought together with a particular purpose. And the most likely reason is, is that they were used as the people of Israel made their journey towards Jerusalem to celebrate one of the great religious festivals in Jerusalem. And that is why they're known as the Psalms of Ascents. As people ascended up the Mount of Zion, up Jerusalem, they would be singing and meditating on God's word uh, in doing so. And the reason for thinking that is not just in the heading, 
But when you look at those 15 psalms, uh, the frequent mention of Zion or of Jerusalem in them, many of these psalms will express uh, a focus and an articulation of their destination, Jerusalem. But more than that, many of these psalms also talk about the harvest, which is a, a theme around the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so as people would be celebrating these uh, harvests, these songs would be appropriately sung. But thinking about these 15 psalms as an intentional arrangement that were used as the people made their pilgrimage towards Jerusalem lends itself to seeing these psalms as very appropriate as songs of discipleship. These are songs that are appropriate in the fact that they deal with different themes. But more than that, they are able to bring together what pilgrimage looks like. And as we think about these psalms, we see that the psalms are describing the life of faith. And the life of faith is a journey, a long journey. Just as one would travel towards Jerusalem, it is a risky journey. It is a trying journey. So the believer is one who is on a long journey of obedience and looking towards their destination. And with that framework, we can come to the Psalms this evening and to appreciate how they were used even in the praises of Israel. The life of faith is a life of pilgrimage, and it is a long journey towards their desired destination. And for believers today, we too are on a long journey. And through all the trials and all the risks and dangers that we face, our destination is always before us. And we are moving forward with a clear goal in mind, to stand in the presence of God and of enjoying his presence. Just as the people moved towards Jerusalem where they could come and have access before the throne of grace in the presence of God, we are looking ultimately uh, to the return of Christ when we will stand before our King. So this evening we want to come and look at this first uh, Psalm of Ascents and we want to look at it uh, from the vantage point of a pilgrim and the life of faith. We want to see that one of the dynamics that come with living in this world uh, is, is that we live in a fallen world. And as we live in a fallen world, the life of the believer is one that longs for peace. In a world where there is limited or only relative peace, the believer is one who is longing for more than what is already realized. We want to see that because God is a source of peace, we are to long for God's peace to be established. We want to think about this psalm then in three thoughts. We want to think first about the distress, then secondly about the discernment, and then finally about the direction. First, uh, there is the distress. And you notice that in the opening verse. It says, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. That word distress is a word that means to tie up, uh, to be bound, uh, to bind. Uh, maybe you can remember playing games as a kid, and maybe you are a kid and you like to play games. When I was a kid and I played games with my cousins and with my friends, we would play cops and robbers. Uh, and the idea is, is that the robbers would run away and the cops would chase after them. 
And when they tagged them, then the robbers would be taken to a prison. They would be taken to jail, where the other robbers would have to come and to tag them to get them free. But we sometimes elevated that very simple game of tag and prison uh, to a, another level. Because if the cops went and tagged one of the robbers, they brought them back to the, the zone of jail. But then they would literally take a rope and they would bind their hands and they would literally bind their ankles together and they would be left there. Uh, so that even if someone came to free them, they also had to untie them in the process. But that is really the language that the psalmist is using. In my in my state of being bound up. It, it just, everything was enclosing in on me. That my circumstances were bigger than me. And I was confined. And that language of distress is used in the scriptures both about inner turmoil, regret over the past actions. It's used about desires. It is it is. It is being bound up in a way that my desires, my regrets, these things are bigger than me. And I, I can't fix it. I can't contain it. But it's also used externally when enemies are encroaching in and surrounding a person. They're in distress. And so one's situation can also be something that presses in against them and they feel confined. They feel restricted. They feel desperate. But here the psalmist says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. When I recognized that I couldn't, I couldn't fix it myself, I recognized I had to call on the Lord. And that's, that's the life of faith. The life of faith is one of recognizing the source of our help. It is turning to the Lord when we can't uh, fix things by our own efforts. When we feel pressed in and tied up by our circumstances, and we don't have peace. But notice here, the psalmist explains exactly what this distress is. Uh, even if you take verse 1 as looking back on the past, it's still setting a pattern for how the believer lives. And in verse 2, he begins to explain why he's so distressed. It's about lying. It's about deceivers. It's about slanderers. It's about people who take words and twist them for destructive ends. Again, we've just looked at the ninth commandment about not bearing false witness. And we were highlighting that when a person bears false witness, they bring misery into God's world. They distort the truth and they leave people in bondage rather than liberating them to live as they ought to. But here the psalmist is reflecting on what it's like to be lied to. When someone lies to you, we don't think of that as an indifferent thing. We know that that is something that is awful. And here the psalmist is saying, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. He doesn't really explain or expand as to whether people are lying about him as a believer or whether they are lying to him about God's world, about the situation that he's looking at. It's not really expel, uh, explained, but... At the end of the psalm, when he speaks, it brings hostility. And one could make the case that it is about God's world that these deceitful tongues are being promoted. But either way, it doesn't matter. It is the fact that the truth is being distorted. That there is a, a, 
um, a deceitfulness in the way that other people are speaking. And so he's distressed because the truth does not prevail, but because liars uh, are uh, causing their message uh, to rise up. So the psalmist responds by turning to the Lord to deliver him. Uh, Deliver me, O Lord, from these lying lips. Deliver me uh, from these deceivers that speak. If we just go back to the previous psalm, to Psalm 119 that celebrates God's commands, his law, his revelation. The psalmist comes to the end of that psalm and then he says, deliver me. In spite of his delight in God's law, he still asks God to rescue him. But notice in verse 170 of the previous psalm, Psalm 119, how he asks the Lord to deliver him. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. That, that his basis of crying out to God is the basis of what God has said. It's God's word that he's trusting in. And so in a web of lies, where people are deceiving and tricking one another and hiding things from one another and leaving each other in the dark, the psalmist is ultimately clinging to God's word. Rescue me from this darkness that is prevailing. Rescue me from being deceived. Rescue me from being used as an object for other people's purposes. Rescue me from being a pawn in other people's plots. Help me to know the truth. And so here in this distress, he's calling on the Lord uh, to rescue him. And he is asking him to rescue him. We could say most certainly by his words, that God would dispel the lies and to confirm the truth. But there's not just uh, distress in this psalm as this pilgrim is on his journey through this world. Uh, It is a psalm that is talking about discernment. As he is moving, he is also discerning the end of things, the situation of those who deceive and recognizing his own situation as well. In verses 3 and 4, he says, What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? There's a sense in which he is, he is able to step back from the situation. And he's looking at what the end of this is. Where does, where does a life of lies bring you? Where does a life of deceiving bring you ultimately? And in this questioning, what more shall be done to you? It is, it is an appeal indirectly to God's judgment. He's recognizing that ultimately there is a judgment that awaits when we live a life that is distorting the truth. And he, he is really calling attention to the fact that God is a God who will judge uh, those who manipulate and bury the truth with their lies. In verse 4, he says, A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. That's uh, a, a statement that requires unpacking. What, what does he mean when he's saying that? Well, scripture explains that lying could be compared to a sharp sword. That lying is so destructive that it penetrates and wounds. But then scripture also describes lying like a deadly arrow. It kills. It destroys. James in the New Testament says that lying is set on uh, fire by hell. That it is something that, again, the language of fire is something that consumes and destroys. 
So the language of scripture is an arrow, a sword, a fire. It is something destructive. But now the psalmist says this is the end really of of living a life in rebellion to God. That if we are if we are sowing what is destructive, it ultimately leads to a, an end that is destructive. That those who were sowing arrows that are deadly and using sharp swords with their speech, they will find that their end is one that matches the nature of their own actions. That God's judgment will uh, fit the crime, as it were. And so he uses this language uh, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Uh, The broom tree was a very hard wood. And so the coals of uh, a broom tree would be long-lasting. And the idea is, is that as he says this, he's saying, what took only a moment to say will have a long-term consequence. The destruction that you could bring in a moment with your words will be matched by an enduring judgment from God. And so the psalmist is really stepping back because as he contemplates the wickedness of deceivers, as he's contemplating what liars do in trying to tear down the truth and to bury and to manipulate and to distort things, the psalmist is really keeping himself back from responding in kind. And he's able to remember that there is a judgment And it is important that Christians have that in mind, that we do not live with a vengeful spirit, that our mindset is not one set on revenge like in the Hollywood movies. The believer is to live their life recognizing that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and that the Lord will repay. And that's helpful for the believer, that they're able to put things ultimately into God's hands. But it's also a warning to us that here's a psalm telling us that there is a judgment. And our life is not primarily shaped by a fear of judgment. Our life is not to be framed primarily by uh, the negative consequences that can happen. But it does need to be there. We do need to be reminded sometimes of what, what a certain path can lead towards. And so here is the psalmist who is disturbed. He's distressed. He's bound up and restrained because of what is going on around him. He's asking God for help. He's recognizing that he can't deal with this. He can't fix this. And so as he's thinking about it, he's able to ultimately remember the end of what this brings. A life of lies will end in God's judgment. But he's not only discerning about their end, he's also discerning about his own end. You see that in verses 5 and 6. He says, woe to me. Woe is a, uh, a statement of extreme grief. It's a very strong emotion in scripture. Uh, it is really him saying, this is, not, this is not good. He says, woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Those words don't mean very much, Meshech and Kedar, to many of us, I presume. But Meshech and Kedar, what is important to realize is that those are two very different places. 
Meshek is to the far north. Kedar is southeast. One is far off and one is very close. One is very uh, possibly hostile towards Israel. One is most definitely hostile towards Israel. But the point of the pilgrim here is, is as he is taking these words and singing them, he's recognizing that his situation is not the one that he wants to be in. Woe to me. I live in a world that has fallen. I live in a world where lies abound. I live in a world where people will purposely twist the truth to their own advantage, even if it means crushing their neighbor. I live in a world where people don't primarily want the truth as much as they want control. Woe to me that I live in a world where people don't fear the Lord. And that's the point. You see, the people could sing these words not because they actually lived in Meshech. They can't live in both of these places at the same time. That's not the point. The point is, is that the psalmist says, I find myself surrounded by ungodly people. I find myself surrounded by people who have no fear of God, who do not hold the truth sacred. And I have to pass through this with integrity holding to something that others don't. And so he expresses this woe because he wants something more. He wants something better. Hence his pilgrimage. He would much rather be in Jerusalem. He would much rather be with brothers and sisters who honor and who embrace the truth than corrupt the truth. With those who celebrate God's grace than those who deny God's grace. And so he sees his position as one where he doesn't want to be, but he'd rather be somewhere else. And that ultimately is a pulse that characterizes the life of faith. Yes, we're in God's world, and God has us here, but we are a people that long for more. We long for a, a state where the truth is honored. We long for a state where God is acknowledged we long for a place where there is peace. But the psalmist doesn't see that. And so he is reflecting on his own situation as well. You can see why this psalm becomes a pilgrim psalm as they make their way towards Jerusalem. He is not in the place that he ultimately wants to be. So there's a distress. Uh, he's around people who are lying. Uh, there is his discernment. Their judgment will come. And I need to be in a better place. But there's also his, his direction or his aim as well. There in verse 7, he says, I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Being for peace, many of us might think of that simply as not being hostile. Uh, as people who want to avoid conflict. Uh, and we all have different personalities. But perhaps most of us here tend to shy away from any kind of conflict. We lean heavily on the idea of avoiding problems. But that's not what the psalmist means when he says, I am for peace. We know that because the word itself is a positive word. If you think of peace simply as avoiding conflict, the absence of something, you're thinking about it in a negative way. But when the Bible speaks about peace, 
It's talking about peace as something positive. The word peace means complete. It means fulfilled. It means whole. And so we can't describe peace simply as the, the removal of conflict. It is, it is having a completeness that makes for peace. Imagine someone taking a picture of a city that is in warfare. They could take a picture of a portion of the city where there's no damage. There's, there's been no missiles hitting uh, that, that area of the city. The, you might see a picture of things, but it's not a complete picture. If we're going to have a complete picture, it has to bring in the totality of things. And so we don't get peace by simply having a small fragment of an idea, but by living in light of all of God's truth. So when the psalmist says, I am for peace, he's not simply saying, I avoid problems wherever they rear their heads. The psalmist is saying, I am for peace, which means I want to be made complete. I want to be whole. I want to be fulfilling God's design. But when you think about peace as well, you know that it's not simply avoiding problems. Because the psalmist says, when I speak, they are for war. If the psalmist kept his mouth shut, it begs the question, would there have been no hostility? It's only when he opens his mouth that the hostility comes. And so when the psalmist says, when I am for peace, I speak because peace is the fruit of truth. It is when the truth is established that peace is the result of it. It's when the truth is embraced that we can enjoy peace in its fullness. And so here the psalmist uh, is thinking about peace as living in light of God's word. The, the truth about God's righteous will, the truth about our sinful nature, the truth about God's judgment, these things. Uh, it is the truth about seeking the goodness of our neighbor, seeking to do well for our neighbor by telling them things that they need to know. And so here the psalmist is saying, this is what he is for. What are you for this evening? And how do you go about pursuing that? We can say we're for peace. That was a very popular movement just a number of decades ago. But to be for peace means more than simply avoiding war. Being for peace means that you are for what makes for peace, which is the truth. And here the psalmist is wanting to speak the truth. That doesn't mean that believers should be as provocative as they can be. But it does mean that for those of us who might be of a tendency to not want to ever speak, to not want to say something that will only get a negative reaction, that we have to realize that peace is more than simply wanting others to like us. Peace is standing for what is true and for the goodness of our neighbor. Peace is, for some, uh, peace is something that comes through the truth. So he says all of this, but when he speaks, they are for war. Maybe you're sitting here this evening and someone has spoken the truth into your life. Do you get your back up when someone appeals to God's word as authoritative in your life? When someone speaks to you about God's word, 
as though it is true? Do you lash out when someone is trying to give you a more complete picture of the issue of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment? You young people, think about your own situation. If your mom or your dad is speaking into your your life, do you see something of that in your own situation? Are you like someone who is ready to go to battle because your mom or your dad confronts you about something? They call attention to something. They're trying to call attention to the truth of what's going on in your life. They're trying to draw attention to the importance of God's word. Are you receptive to when people show that love? Or do you react with a harshness that says, I'm ready to do battle? Who are you to talk to me? This is a very practical statement here that the psalmist is saying. When I speak, they are for war. They don't want the truth. Instead, they get their backs up and they're very defensive. So here the psalmist is expressing his desire for peace, but he's also realistic enough to know that by our our sinful hearts, we tend to be defensive. Our pride comes out. We don't want to be told things. We don't want to be uh, held accountable to God's truth. So the psalmist here expresses his awareness of the hostility that would be given in return. But there is uh, uh, ultimately a a fullness of peace can only come from God himself. As as uh, As long as people reject God's truth, they will not know a peace that is complete. It'll be relative, it'll be situational, it'll be circumstantial. So the believer here expresses his direction. He wants to promote what makes for peace by speaking truth. But ultimately, uh, this motif of the pilgrim is a motif. This is a, a longing that is true even of Jesus himself. That Jesus himself comes into this world to make for peace. The son of God came into this world to testify, to bear witness to the truth. Because he is the truth. And not only does God bring deliverance by his word, but he brings deliverance in his word incarnate. In the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world telling people about the truth of their sin, but also about uh, God's kingdom and of God's salvation uh, through his atoning death. But more than that, Jesus not only testifies to the truth, but he makes for peace through his death on the cross. So that ultimately he would be crucified on the cross at the hands of hostile sinners. When he spoke the truth, they were for war. And he died. But the scriptures celebrate that although he was crucified, by his death, he has made peace. That the blood of Christ has made peace. And so we can have peace with God through the work of the Lord Jesus. We can have peace in our soul uh, uh, as a result of his atoning sacrifice. The spirit of truth comes to bear witness uh, to the life uh, of sinners about what God has done to allow them to have peace themselves. And the Lord's deliverance causes those who have received the Lord Jesus to want to bring others to know that peace as well. 
So if we find ourselves living in Meshech and Kedar, in a world that is hostile to the things of Christ, we want them to come to know the peace of God as well. And so not only does the peace of God come in Jesus, but the peace of God expands and extends as the word of truth goes out. As the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads, more and more of God's peace is realized. And so the longing of the believer is one that is not in vain because God's work and God's will is to bring peace to pass. He has made peace through the blood of uh, Christ on the cross, but he also causes those who are born of the Spirit to have the fruit of the Spirit themselves. And so they now live with this ultimate destination in mind that all history is moving towards peace. By the work of the Spirit, they have peace in their soul, but they also expand that peace towards others, telling them of the sure and certain hope that they can have, that God will work uh, to bring peace for them. This is a psalm of ascents. It is a psalm that the people of God would use on their journeys as they journey towards Jerusalem three times a year, they would reflect on peace. I live in a world that's fallen. This is not where I want to be. I want to be in this world where truth is established. And so I am living of this life. I'm on a journey, a long journey of obedience to God's revelation, clinging to the hope that God's deliverance comes through his word. And in the fullness of time, the word became incarnate. And we can have peace from our sins. We no longer have to feel bound up with a sense of despair. There is a savior. We no longer have to live in the fear of others because the God who is sovereign is for us. We can have peace now even as we await a greater peace to be realized when Christ returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over uh, this psalm, that it would help us uh, to think over our own experience, to think over what it is that we are for, and to think over what it is that makes for peace. Lord, we pray that you would grant to us wisdom, that we would be people who... Uh, do not uh, seek to uh, uh, simply stir up conflict, that we would not be people who enjoy discord, but that we would be people who seek to uh, bring honor uh, to our God by speaking words that make for peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who do not live in rebellion to you, that we would not be people who live as uh, people who are for war, uh, rebelling against our God and rebelling against those who testify to the truth of your gospel. But help us, Lord, to have hearts that receive your word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.